This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. This is David M. Ewalt, author of, of Dice and Men, and you're listening to The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 250, we're going to... Here we are, born to be kings, we're the princes of the apocalypse. <clears throat> As we review Princes of the Apocalypse, the big adventure highlighting the second big storyline of 5th edition D&D, and with us for this review is Jeffrey D. Wynn, who Hello. you may know from... <laughs> Hello. Which you may know from the Tome Show's own Appendix N podcast. Was I was I not supposed to come come in there? You come in wherever you want. It is your show, man. Wait, this is my show now? No, but I mean, sure, whatever. <laughs> Sweet, you, you, you showed up. <laughs> you showed up. I have I have taken over the Tome Show like like some kind of cultist worming his Ooh. way into the Deserin Valley. <laughs> Very good. You know who I think would have really liked that singing? Matt James. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, at least uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure you 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 stayed on key, so that was that was pretty yeah, good. I tried, I tried. Yeah, I practiced a few times uh, before the show. Anyway, let's get into it. We're not, we're not going to waste a lot of time talking about the introduction. Uh, listeners, be warned before we get started, though. In, you can't do a good review of an adventure without discussing what's in the adventure. So this is your spoiler warning. We will be discussing NPCs, stories, and more. You have been warned. Also, full disclosure. I get, got a free review copy of the book. Anybody else? Nope, I paid for mine. Ah, uh, that's what I figured. So, let's get into it. What is the story of Princes of the Apocalypse? Tracy, go. Oh, it's about, about these ponies that are in this land. With, okay, like, Jeff, go. Magic- <laughs> 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 all right, so uh, I, I've, uh, I've briefly skimmed uh, the background material. I believe, so there's, there's these four uh, elemental cults that are, are popping up in an area of the Forgotten Realms called the Deserin Valley, mm-hmm. which I believe is an area that not, not a lot has been done with before. Uh, it's, it's, it's basically an, an area that's between other areas that, that we, that we yeah. care about. Uh, and uh, there's, there's these four elemental cults. Uh, there, there was some kind of drow wizard who made uh, four awesome weapons and he put them on an altar and these four prophets came and they took the weapons and they formed four separate cults and you have to go and stop them. There we are. And that's how the the elemental evil came to the Forgotten Realms because the drow. 
Uh, sure. Because <laughs> that because some history here. Uh, the the concept of elemental evil goes back to to earlier editions. There has been the original Temple of Elemental Evil adventure, which is sort of a classic, um, which is also connected to the adventure uh, dealing with ha- the villa the village of Hamlet. Um, and then there is also the return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, which was second edition. Um, sort of coming back to the same setting and whatever, those two were both set in the world of Greyhawk. And now, of course, because everything is Forgotten Realms, um, they have taken this concept of those adventures, and rather than recreate those adventures or whatever, they're kind of paying homage to those adventures, but talking about how, you know, elemental evil is a, you know, pan-dimensional threat. Why wouldn't it come to the realms too? And here it is. Absolutely. So there's some background for Princes of the Apocalypse. And and tra- traditionally the the cause of the elemental evil is a apocalyptic deity known as Tharisdun. Well, that was a thing that was brought in for return to the Temple of Elemental Evil. In the original, um there was no reference to Tharisdun. Uh, Interesting. I did not that know that. That was something they added in in the later edition. Okay. And and there's no mention of Tharisdun anywhere in this in this adventure either. They don't even really deal with the Elder Elemental Eye, which is the sort of the, the front for Thera's done in, in the return um, series or in the return adventure. Um, they, they sort of say there's, there's this Elder Elemental Eye, but really secretly it's Thera's done, but nobody knows. Shh, you know, um, they don't really even deal with that much here. Now and, you're, you're the realms fan, Jeff has, has Tharizdun ever been a part of, of the realms? I mean, he's, he's, he's one of these bad guys like, like, like Vecna, who's just kind of everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that he's ever been a big part of realms lore, but the story of Tharizdun is that, you know, basically he was so big and so bad that all the gods had to band together and, and chain him up. Uh, and and lock him away in a prison somewhere, and he's constantly just trying to get out, and that's what the the elemental evils are about is trying yes. trying to free Therizdun. and so I could see where he could fit into the realms and do it just fine um, because he's locked up and has been you know for millennia. So sure, that's of course nobody's ever heard of him before, you know. I, I guess that's that's also kind of Shar's story, isn't it? Uh, she's not locked up though. I mean, they, oh, okay. they, they did lock up Cyric, um, but that's recent. That's not like ages ago. I guess, I guess like if, if we were going to f- try to find a realm, like if we didn't want to use Tharizdun, if we wanted to try to find a realmsian substitute, like Char would, like I would, I would pick, pick, pick Char. I mean, Char certainly seems like she's secretive and manipulative enough, manipulative enough to, to pull something like this. And she just doesn't show up, not because she's chained, but you know, because she's keeping it a secret. Right, but that's neither here, here nor, nor there because none of that figures into this adventure. Yeah, so we should probably I mean, move on to the actual. Yeah, there's sort of a, a, an allusion to some of that. Like at the end, they sort of do this this quick aside of, and here's some other things you could do after the campaign is over to continue the story that involves some of you know, which kind of I guess doesn't necessarily involve, but pays homage to those of us who know the other adventures that you could go that direction with it and bring in Thera's done or whatever. But yeah. That, we're talking about the end now, and we haven't really talked about anything else. So, so okay. we we can we can step back a few steps and 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 look at the the uh, rest of the adventure. Okay, well, it it starts off uh, in this town, I, I believe, Red Red Larch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, so I, I just want to disclose. I'm, I'm running this for D and D Encounters, and I sort of picked up this book uh, two weeks ago because one of our DMs was, was, was out. So I started running the campaign uh, in the, in, in, in the middle. Ah. So, <laughs> and, and, and I haven't uh, even, even read the entire ad, adventure yet. But my, my understanding is, is the campaign goes in four sort of steps there's there's like the pre-adventure adventures like the the getting the party together and then there's the and then there's four above ground temples that you're supposed to go to and and deal with those and then there's four below ground temples that you're supposed to go to and and deal with those and then there's a big temple in the underdark that where the end game kind of is yeah and of course and and that big temple Way down, and it's not in the Underdark, but it has an entrance to the Underdark in it. It's, it's just deeper down, yeah. Um, um, and it even has then four elemental nodes split off from that. So it's kind of a hey, here's a dungeon for you to go through. Ah, oh, we fooled you. There's more dungeon under that, and then there's more dungeon under that. And, oh, guess what? One more dungeon under that. You know, <laughs> it just sort of keeps going yeah, and going and going. It did seem to be a way to do one of those massive dungeon adventures from old without. Uh, making it seem like uh, here are three entrances now explore everything and they're mm-hmm. it's random. No, absolutely. I, I feel like it, that, and, and I don't think that's illegitimate. I mean, they're definitely doing a massive dungeon crawl, um, mm-hmm. but that's part of sort of the history of of these adventures, right? Is that there has there's a history of these being just sort of massive dungeon crawls. Yeah, but the the dungeons are divided up into twelve mini dungeons, and there there's lots of space for breaks or doing doing other things between the dungeons. They're they're not just all one yeah. big monolithic yeah. structure. Yep, and, and and actually that's a really good um, good thing they did, right? And so yeah, you talked about how there's these different parts. So there's there's the like three layers of the dungeoning. Uh, but then there's all these other things going on on the surface. There's the retaliation from the the cult. Um, that you know, there's actually like they say in between this and this, you can throw in this where they where their cult is retaliating. There's all these side adventures that you can go on at different points, and so there's all this other stuff that you can do not in the dungeon crawl, which I think is important because my fear, looking at just the basic core of it without all that extra stuff, is that oh, it's just I did this dungeon and now I'm doing another dungeon, and then I discovered yet another dungeon, and I every time I feel like I've accomplished something, I just have to start over again with something new. Uh, and that the players will get real tired of it real fast. Um, but with all that other stuff mixed in there, um, it feels like that might combat some of that. Well, it feels like there's a bigger world going on too, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Well, one of the uh, things which... I, one of the things I always really loved when I've run the Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil um, is because it's a huge dungeon crawl, right? Um, but I've always changed it and made it a lot more dynamic right nobody nobody just sits and waits right they're much more hey you attacked here now they're retaliating there and they've recruited over there and all this stuff that's not in the adventure that i've used and i feel like this adventure is designed to do that and they help you do that yeah and 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 they also help make sure that the players can see that the world changes as even beyond that. Like once you have uh, defeated certain parts of the dungeon, it changes mm-hmm. th- that part, if not other parts mm-hmm. too. Yeah. And, and like the, how much water is still in the dungeon. And yeah. 
They they refer to at one point in in the adventure they actually refer to it as a sandbox adventure. Do we feel like it's sandboxy? Yeah, I I actually do. Yeah. I mean, I, it's I cer- think... it's certainly not super linear. I don't know if it's. I mean, it's it's not as sandboxy as like Grand Theft Auto or Skyrim right. because it's it's you know they they've only got two hundred fifty pages. Right. To. I mean... to... I mean, if you want a true sandbox adventure, you just say, here's a campaign guide and get, get out of the way, right? I mean, well, you, you could buy, like, three adventures this size and just sort of run them con- concurrently and have the adventurers balance between them, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a hard... I mean, you can't really do a sandbox adventure that you're publishing that's really something you would call an adventure, right? Well, yeah, go I ahead. Guess, I guess, too, like, what are you defining as a, as a sandbox adventure? Well, yeah, you're right. I think that's part of the conversation too. Uh, it's just that th- there is definitely a a prescribed story. There's an order in which things generally take place, but there's a lot of play within that. Right? It's not a completely open world. I mean, in as much as every RPG mm-hmm. is a completely open world, right? Um, but at the same time, there are definitely layers and story points and beats that you have to hit in, in a specific order. But they also like very carefully prescribe things like if you do this first this is how the other places react and how the story changes right and you could play through it again and attack somewhere else first and it changes the way the whole thing plays out but not really right it it changes where you meet certain npcs right but it doesn't really change the story it still progresses with the same formula and the and the the stories is pretty simple it, it's you you go and find these dungeons and then you kill everyone inside like that's that's the story yeah you know, and, and, I, the, and the formula is so you took out one of the big bads at this place and so the others all flee deeper into the dungeon right and then you go and yeah. find one of them at the next layer and the, the remaining two whichever two they are it doesn't matter because it's always going to be the same flee off to their elemental nodes and then you go kill one of them and as they're in the middle of, of some ritual but the fourth one finishes the ritual and you have to fight the big prince, right? So no matter who you go after and what order you go, that's going to be the formula, right? That's the linear part. Well, I see, I, I'm not sh- quite sure that's linear versus just being formulaic. But there is – I will agree there's a ton of formulaic stuff in right. it because there's even always a pretty big monster that isn't really a fan of the cultists but doesn't like non-cultists either. So it depends on how you approach them. <laughs> And there's actually a, there's a lot of that. Um, there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of opportunities to talk your way through things, diplomatize your way through things, infiltrate. Um, you know, uh, even though the cult is is you know at, at certain points being pretty severely attacked by the party, they're still like, yeah, but you could just put on the robes and and wear these holy symbols and just walk in, or you know, <laughs> or or come up with a good story and they're gonna buy. It's like really because like you just slaughtered hundreds of their people. Shouldn't they know who you are? You know. <laughs> Start, yeah. you know, the the prophets who are seeing these visions of the of the party and and thus responding to them should shouldn't they like I don't know draw a sketch and hand it out to the guards? Are the are the cults even supposed to be working together? Yeah, so that's one of the things about the cults is that they don't really work together. They compete with each other, um, but they all have the same master, so to speak, right? Um, and, and there's a and they do they in 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 this like do they do they have have the same master like who's who's 
pulling the strings. Well, so we never, we never, and that's what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Is that we never get to the elder elemental I slash Thera's done, right? We never get to the big bad that's that's pulling all the strings. Um, and so in the in just the context of the story that's here, you're right. There's not um, in the larger story for people who who dig into the background a little bit more. There there is some um, common, but part of that is. Um, I mean, that Grand Masters wants the strongest followers possible. And so he purposely pits them against each other, right? Survival of the fittest. Yeah. Right. It's, but, but the comment, but so it's kind of like they're in a comp- The way I saw it was that they were kind of in a competition with each other, but they obviously outsiders are bad. Yeah. Because they're not part of the competition, so they just well, get crushed. Although, yes and no. I mean, there was a few right. times where you can like, hey, I found the big bad, and they said they want to be our friend and told us to go attack those guys, <laughs> you know? Where they're clearly like, the the NPCs, the bad guy villain NPCs are actually trying to, they, they want to leave the party alive and just aim the gun at somebody else, you know? Yeah, the the, the very first uh, session I, I ran, the, the PCs uh, went to Feathergale Spire, and they were polite, so they, they they got to participate in a in a feast and a and a manticore hunt. And at the end of it, the guy was like, uh, "There's some bad guys over at uh, what uh, Sacred Stone uh, yeah, Monastery. Monastery. They're the bad guys. We're not the bad guys. They are. Uh, go go kill them. We're just we're just uh, we're just wealthy uh, wyvern flyers people. Right. <laughs> but Which I mean, is how they, that's supposed to play out, right? That's exactly how it was supposed right. to work. I mean, they they, they also like you know didn't tell the PCs that they were evil evil cultists. So I mean there's 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 that. And there's but. still the chance that they could make you into cultists. But then you're mm-hmm. in the middle of the temple and you're not a cultist yet. They kind of just say no. I I I will say like at at, at this point having run several uh Paizo Pathfinder ad, adventure paths this this is is very sandboxy and non-linear just by comparison. comparison. Yeah. No, I, and and Watsy has been playing with that for a while now with some of the the pre 5th edition stuff. Um they've been playing with format uh to get us more towards uh, a bit more sandboxy. Uh and I definitely feel like this is the best implementation of what they've been playing with so far. And maybe I maybe I'm giving Watsy too much credit since it was Sasquatch Studios who designed the book. Um but I think they really brought it together. Like they found a, a really good balance, and there's a formula there. And while um, that formula could be problematic if you were to run the adventure multiple times, and then people would figure out the formula, um, I feel like I'm probably not going to run it multiple times. I'm going to run it one time, and I just won't tell the players that there's a, you know, that there's a formula, right? If you just don't talk well, about the formula, then then there's no formula. Um, so one of the things, though, when I worked on um, The Lost City, mm-hmm. uh, Wolfgang was telling us, like, a, a, a sandbox adventure can have a story. Um, it's just that you're not necessarily applying that. St- the way I understood it was you're not applying, making the PCs go through a particular story. And I understand how, like, you kind of are in some ways if mm-hmm. you make them go through each level of the dungeon. But then, like, anything that had a dungeon, that might be true anyway. Right. Well, and that and that's that's kind of what I was saying, right? Is that yeah. there is a concept of sandbox that I just don't think you can pull off in a published adventure because at that point you literally have to be making it up as you go, <laughs> and or, if you're making you it up just, as you go, you're, you can't publish it. Or, uh, or it's it's a type of adventure where 
like, because we talked about this a little bit, even with this adventure, there's a a bunch of cool, interesting things that just kind of happen. And imagine, like, if instead of uh, having it be, like, you're trying to to defeat all the four elements, uh, it was just, like, those things just happen, and then you guys figure out how to make that interesting. Yeah. No, I could, and I've actually, I had this concept for, for an adventure once upon a time. Um, but I'm not a good designer, so I never made it. <laughs> um, but but I had the, the concept being basically instead of here's your adventure and here's your story, you say here's the timeline of events and here are the interesting locations where those events intersect. And now just right. go right. Here's you know here are the things that are happening and here's here's places to go and, and things to fight and you can just do whatever you want and make your story from there. You know, which is what I really wish they would have done for Tyranny of Dragons. <laughs> Yeah, tyranny had some issues, and and, and let's talk about that. Uh, actually, I, I wanted to sort of hit that at some point. How does this compare to Tyranny of Dragons? I, I like this a lot, a lot more. Is that Matt hey. James? Hey, Matt James. I have my iPad on me. <laughs> so, are you are you re- recording this podcast while you're driving home? No, I'm actually. I just. I just ran into my house right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. With your car? Yes, my car <laughs> through the living room. I have a brand new front door. <laughs> awesome. Well, we just, we've we've been talking about the the princes of the apocalypse now for twenty minutes or so, uh, and we were just starting to compare it to how does this compare to Tyranny of Dragons, the the storyline that came before this. What do you think? Um, I'm actually really impressed with what uh, Sasquatch Games did with this. Um, it's actually one of my, you know, I've got a, a long storied history with uh, love affair with Dungeons and Dragons, but um, for whatever reason, this one's kind of sticking to me. I really like it. Now, I haven't played it. I should give that caveat. Um, I haven't had time to actually sit down and play it, but I have read through pretty much the entire book. Yeah, of the four of us, only Jeff has played it. Oh really? The other Jeff, I've, not me. I've run I've run two sessions of it. Cool, yeah. Um, I mean, on the surface, obviously, you don't know how. You never know how an adventure is going to turn out because there's so much that's involved, including you know the makeup of your party and how your friends like to play mm-hmm. and things like that. So, what where some where one person might have an excellent experience with an adventure another might have a terrible one but it might not have anything to do with the actual adventure all right I mean, and and we can't we can't um review people's experiences with an adventure right right but we can review the adventure as as we've read it and as we've read compared to other adventures or or what have you right so right uh i think generally we we've been fairly impressed like tyranny of dragons had some issues and and some of that came out because of its early release i think uh before the edition was really fully baked um but some of it was you know and, and and some of it i i feel like was possibly editorial decisions where where Cobble, you know designed a certain thing and then watsi uh rearranged some things or whatever and so it never quite gelled um, but some of it i felt like was was intentional like it was designed that way um whereas in prince of the apocalypse i feel like the decisions you make matter um they they change the outcome of the game the dynamic nature of it plays out a lot better the the sandboxy parts of it play out um pretty strong um you know and and even just like little editing things right i saw very little in tyranny of dragons every now and then they'll be like hey if you do this kind of search you'll find this yeah but you didn't give me like dcs or 
um, hey, you here's a list of the random encounters on the caravan part, except that one of those is not there. It's a different adventure, a different encounter, right? And it just sort of little edit, editing things. I didn't catch anything in here other than maybe one little artifact. I ran into one spot where you run into one NPC prisoner, and when you free him, he's, there's like this little note that he was traveling with this scout in this other room, and, and there's no mention of any other scout in the other room. But it's a room full of dead bodies, so sure, maybe there's a scout in there. It's not really important. Right, and and I think it's important to point out, and I don't think uh, these folks get enough credit, um, whether it's through reviews or just online in general, but the, uh, the playtesters involved... Um, I know have a significant uh, kind of impact on this. And uh, I, I believe it was, uh, I don't have my book on me right now. I'm going to go run up and get it, but I didn't want to interrupt. But uh, I think Rich Baker wrote this adventure. And yes, he did. He, unfortunately, I don't think Richard gets enough credit for being a really great adventure designer. I mean, I think a lot of people know him from his novels that he wrote in Forgotten Realms. And of course, all the work that he's done in third edition and then fourth edition. But um, he does a really great job with adventures in general. So that mixed with the the playtesters, I believe Teos is in a Teos is one of them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a whole slew of them, but um, I will point out that I am also a, a Watsi playtester. And, and, oh, and, conflict of interest. Uh, well, and I received uh, early playtest documents of this, but but I didn't really get a chance to do much with it. However, one okay. of the playtesters listed is a member of my group, so he must have uh, provided some feedback as well. There you go. And I, I can't emphasize enough how important that is that you get a set of eyes on any adventure that hasn't necessarily... Now, this isn't to say that uh, Tyranny of Dragons didn't have playtesters, but like you mm-hmm. like you alluded to before, I mean, even I looked through Tyranny of, of Dragons, but uh, without fully understanding at the time exactly how 5th edition was going to turn out and things like right. that, I think, I think a lot got lost in transaction there, or yeah, translation. Yeah, I think a lot of the playtesting for Tyranny of Dragons was a playtesting to find and counterbalance. And there, yeah. was, there was less focus on story design and, and all that kind of stuff. So, And, and one of the cool things that, um, again, I don't know how long you guys have been talking about this, but one of the things I really dug about this adventure was somewhere, I think, in the back, maybe one of the appendixes they had, or appendices, however you pronounce that, um, they had... Uh, like, hey, if you play in Dark Sun, yeah. And by the way, they and they didn't give it like here's a paragraph. They they like dedicated a whole page or two, yeah, saying like, hey, if you're an Athis, this is what you should do. Or hey, are you an Eberron? Here's a whole slew of story that you can use to to seamlessly plug in. And I thought I thought that was really cool that it wasn't just kind of a. I, I think I recall in some fourth edition books, and even in third edition, I saw this where it was like. Hey, here's one paragraph that hopefully inspires you. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, man, they could have given a l- little bit more space to this. So. They even went through like each of the factions and said, here's a a, a version of that faction that would work. Right. For, right. You know. I, thought, I thought that was totally, totally awesome. I, in fact, I, I, I was rather entertained by the section on how to convert it to Greyhawk. It's like, really? Because this was originally a Greyhawk store. <laughs> right? That's a pretty easy conversion. Right. right. <laughs> but they left out Mistara. Oh man! Don't even get me started on this. <laughs> That's one of my. I'm so glad you said that. Like, I got little goosebumps because I really like Mistar, but like nobody really knows about Mistar. It feels like, and I'm like, man, you're kidding me, man. The whole Dragon Lord of Mistar storylines, and I'm, oh man, I love Mistar. Yeah, I never played Mistar. 
I mean, it's it's the reason why it probably honestly didn't gain much popularity is it was much of the same. I mean, you know, right. for people who don't really get into the stories, they go, okay, that's just like the Forgotten Realms, or okay, that's just like Dragonland, and you know. Kind of, you know... It's the reason I never got into Greyhawk. It's like, well, if I wanted to tell that kind of story, why wouldn't I just put it in the realms? Right, exactly. And and I'm the same way as well. And it has nothing to do with being anti-Greyhawk. I just didn't grow up with Greyhawk, so... Very good. No, yeah, you're right. And that's really cool. And and that actually brings up some other points. There's extra other stuff in those appendices that, that are actually kind of cool that they're adding to the game in general, not just in this adventure. There's a whole section uh, with magic items and, and new spells and not a, not just like five or six new spells. There's a pretty hefty <coughs> chunk of new spells um, that can add to your game generally. And then there's also uh, obviously new monsters uh, and, a, and a new PC race. Uh, and then if you get into the online extras, there's two different documents they provide online um, that one extra race becomes four extra races. I just got my book. This the art in the back is really awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. one of those things that I'm always torn on. Right, I, I see the page after page after page of artwork. And it's like, well, couldn't that have been more story? <laughs> like, yeah, but, what am I missing? But at the same time, like, I feel like I got a complete story, and well, so that, it's really cool to see the art. You look at some of the images and. You know, it it inspires like, oh, that looks cool, and I might not have a whole thing on what this is, but I could come up with something, you know. Yeah, and well, and a lot of the art is stuff that like what wasn't used, right? Right. They created art for it. It's like, well, that's cool, but we didn't use those. Like every um, every elemental group has their their beacons, but mm-hmm. there's not really that that concept of beacons never really appears anywhere in the story. This, this this might be concept art that made its way into the Neverwinter MMO or the Dungeons and Dragons uh, online game. MMO, right? Or what is it? Uh, Legends of the Sword Coast, the the upcoming uh, VRPG. So yeah, Rich Baker uh, did a great job. The artwork, in my opinion, I thought was pretty cool. It wasn't it wasn't too cartoony. I'm looking through it again right now. Mm-hmm. Also, another thing that I like that they're doing in Fifth Edition is if you look on the credits page they actually they give a, they give the full image of the cover art and right. then they give a description of it and I'm like that is freaking cool and they give you the little uh the little joke disclaimer every in every book too right which is kind of cool it kind of forces you to kind of want to read through the books well and, you... and they're 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 clearly having fun right which you should they're making a game well, that, is, that is my favorite part of opening a, a new book in fifth edition is just reading that little disclaimer there on the on the credits page. Right, yeah. it's cool. So yeah, I'm I'm very happy with this. And um, by the way, if you choose not to use the creatures in here, I can't remember the website, but I was I was just looking the other week. Uh, someone created a website where you can go and put your favorite first second or third edition monster and it'll automatic and like they, they've generally figured out the math of fifth edition and you you plug in your favorite creature and it spits out like fifth edition stats and i was like that's freaking cool so i'm sure you're i'm sure the listeners can uh you know do their google foo and find that <laughs> maybe maybe that'll make its way into the into the show notes Oh, now you're going to make me take show notes? Yes. <laughs> By the way, there's a really cool picture on page 210 of this adventure with Wigan Nettleby. That, the <laughs> halfling? 
That's a good looking dude right there. I like. There, yeah. There's cool pictures on a lot of pages of this ad- adventure. The, the the art is freaking fan fan fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I was pleased I think to Kate see. Kate is still doing the uh, the art stuff. Let me see. Who? Kate. Talk- yeah, 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 Kate Irwin's still the art director. Yeah, we, we, we talked like about that. Two art directors in here. Yeah. She's yeah. really good. No, and I I was pleased. I. It, uh, recycled art always stands out to me because I've been looking at D and D books for so long now that when they recycle it, it's like glaringly, glaringly obvious to me. Right. Uh, and I saw only one instance of it in here. I think they recycled the art for the Elemental Myrmidians. Oh yeah. Um, I think those are. I don't know if they were third the, or fourth edition art, but third. The, the Myrmidons. Yeah, that's it. I don't pronounce things. Myrmidon, I think, is is, is some kind of Greek uh, warrior, whereas uh, Meridian is not that. And and Myrmidians is a word that I made up. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So do we do we want to talk about these these uh, uh, appendices, the the extra races and the and the spells and 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 how they were released separately uh, on online because. I mean, like up up until this product actually came out, like I was under the impression that, that there was going to be two physical books. Yeah, so I that, think I think that was the original plan was to have sort of a player's book and then have the actual adventure, and they decided instead to just have the one big book and release some of the extra player stuff for free. And then, but then, like the free supplement actually has more stuff than what's in the published supplement because in the in the in the PDF, you get uh, Ar- Arakakra, you get Sverf Neblin, which I never get tired of saying. Sverf uh, And you get uh, Goliaths. Mm-hmm. And and like like even like even the the uh, layout for the spells isn't the same, which which uh, frustrated me because I was I was making that that uh, index, and 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 the PDF doesn't exactly match the printed uh document so my <laughs> my index only refers to one and not the other sure hey, uh, tracy i'm gonna have to ask you to just pipe down okay you're being <laughs> extremely rude by interrupting you know she, she was she was very talkative until you came on what <laughs> I'm not making Tracy shy am i i went to i went and saw Tracy up in boston uh Late last year, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, it was always a lot of fun. <laughs> there you are. You do exist. <laughs> I do still exist. Well, I didn't have anything to say about the appendices. I was gonna make another point about tyranny of dragons, but now go for it. What's up? All I was gonna say was like, um, how many books were in tyranny of dragons? Two. For how many levels? Fifteen. Mm. Versus, like, this one has a ton of levels um, in one book. I think this, this this also goes up this to goes, about this is one to fifteen. It's the same yeah. number of levels. Yeah. Yep. In one in yes. one book as opposed to two. It's a yeah. it's a it's a bigger book too, but yeah, uh, I think it's easier to, to squish in um, more experience points when you do a dungeon crawl too. Right, and so, and, yeah. and I think they did a good job at uh, having a lot of like the sidetrack type stuff and suggestions for, hey, you can wander off into here mm-hmm. if you need to. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like um, they sort of said, hey, 
let's look at the original Temple of Elemental Evil sort of adventures and with Hamlet and all that. And Red Larch will be our version of Hamlet, but the things surrounding it are way more rich. Like, sure, there's Red Larch, but then there's also, uh, you know, 10 other places and, and towns that you can visit, ignoring the big cities like Neverwinter or, or uh, Tribor even or, or Waterdeep nearby. Um, yeah, places like Yartar and yeah. Womford and... Womford sounds so British to me. I don't know. <laughs> the University of Womford. Absolutely. <laughs> but And we were talking about the online things. And, and it's worth noting, there's, so there's two different online uh, files you can get that are free. There's the, the Player's Companion. And actually, when I went to download it the other day, I found that the Watsi copy of it wasn't working. Like, I couldn't get it to download. But it's available through DriveThruRPG and, and D&D Classics for free there as well. So I just downloaded it at those places. And then there's also the, the what do they call it, the um, online supplement or whatever. Uh, yeah, the online supplement. The online supplement isn't actually anything new, right? There's no new things in that PDF. But it's basically all of the monsters and magic items that are mentioned in the adventure that aren't published in the adventure. Right. So so if you don't have a monster manual and a DMG, if you're playing with the basic rules, for example, you can still run this adventure. Yeah. I didn't even even know about that. That's that's interesting. Yeah. So so I mean, I could I could pick up this this uh, how many pages is it? This 55 page PDF and have that available and never have to pull out my monster manual because everything I need is there or in the actual book. Um, and then the the player's guide only, I guess, has the spells which are reprinted in the actual book and the Genasi, which is reprinted in the actual book, but then adds those three new races that you mentioned. So you actually get some new content there as well. So so how do, how do we feel about uh, player content being sort of sort of tacked on to to the end of an an adventure right because like previous editions this would be like a a player splat splat book for Mm -hmm. like maybe like 30 30 bucks i I get a couple races and spells but if if i'm a player and i want to be a ganasi i i gotta hope that my uh dm buys this princes of the apocalypse book or or i have to buy it even though you don't want to play that adventure or whatever yeah Right, or or I have to have one of these newfangled com- com- computers, and I, I I guarantee that there are people out there complaining that they have to download an electronic document to to play, uh, you know, Spurf Neblin or 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 what whatever. Of course, they're also getting it for free. Well, so. I I kind of like it in the book because, in a weird way, it kind of empowers the dungeon master right like if my, if one of my players is already ahead of the curve anyways and they're le- they learn about every damn thing that comes out they're gonna know about it anyways but for me i can at least say hey and then describe what a sphere fneblin is give some history and say this is an option that can be played instead of like an a la carte menu that right. the players are always showing up with so in a weird way it kind of puts the power back in my hand as the DM instead of well and I think I think to... every stupid thing that came not stupid but you know what I mean everything <laughs> came out in a book and going what are you are you kidding me I didn't even know about that and it's yeah. like oh yeah didn't you didn't you know there's this there's this book that has nothing but stat blocks in it called the adventurer's vault and I think and I think on one hand uh, to to sort of piggyback on that 
what they've done is they've made it so, hey, we're going to continue to make new options for the game, but they're tied to story, right? They're specifically important to this story or to this setting or whatever. There's not just, here's a bunch of new options, right? There's a reason for the options. Uh, and so I like that. Uh, but on the other hand, what if I'm running my own adventure, right? I'm creating my own campaign. Now, I, yeah, I get Jeff's point. Like, now I got to pick and choose pieces from here and there and whatever. And I can, I can see that being uh, a, a thing. If we had a fourth edition style um, compendium that was searchable and all of that available, um, that, that would fix that. So I, I, I appreciate them tying new player options to story and – this is this is not not a bad way to do it. I simply question whether it's it's the best way to do it. And I'll I'll say like what what could have uh, improved this from a a good product to a a truly amazing product if instead of like one hardcover book, maybe it was a slipcase with like two hardcover books. You know the the adventure and the players option, and and maybe like like some 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 flip mats or 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 or, or some tokens. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd 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 like to see them keep playing with format and and just try different things. And it wouldn't have even had to be two hardcovers. I could have seen a hardcover, a smaller hardcover, and then a player's book that was you know uh, a thin booklet sort of thing, like they've done before. I think they. I think they're. I think they start running into to other issues. That, that, becomes, that becomes a cost issue, right? Because then it starts. Right. Getting, then they have to start selling it for for seventy or eighty bucks, and nobody wants to buy an right. adventure for eighty and bucks. You, I you, would. I would pay eighty bucks for a slipcase with two bucks. I mean, this. I mean, this is, is a good adventure that that will take you six months to a year to to run. So, I mean, I don't. I don't mind paying that that price for something that's going to entertain me for that long. There you go. You hear that, Watsy? Jeff Wynn will pay eighty bucks for that slipcase. We'll see. We'll see what they do. I mean, it wouldn't happen for a year or two because they've already got the next several things planned out. I'm sure, <laughs> but still, there you Actually, go. Actually, yeah. I mean, and I I don't know how they're doing the the publishing manufacturing part for fifth edition stuff, but I would really, really, really like to see them um, grant more licenses to some more companies. Um, well, then, allow them to incur that cost, and they've continued to um, change studios. So I, mean, I think Watsi's doing all the publishing and, and manufacturing and all of that. But they're yeah. they're you know the first adventure path was Kobold. This one is Sasquatch. The next one is Green Ronin. Um So they continue to sort of invite others into their into their sandbox. You know. Yeah, and there's 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 nothing saying that that Watsi can't uh, re re revisit, republish, add support to uh, old ad adventures. I mean, you know, uh, Paizo introduces <coughs> new products tied to the, the the rise of the Rune Lords. Their 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 very first yeah. ad adventure path. They're they're adding tie-in products for that thing oh. all all the time. So there's there, there's nothing saying that like in a year and a half, if someone at Watsi gets a great idea. For how to republish Tyranny of Dragons and just make it better, make it more accessible, they they should go ahead and do that. Well, and there's always yeah. an advantage in in being the first adventure, right? Because it's the one that the most people will play. 
Some people will never play Princes of the Apocalypse because they're still playing Tyranny of Dragons, and by the time they're done, the next two or three adventures will be out, right? So um, mm-hmm. the first one gets the most play, I think, and, and people have a shared experience because because of those adventures were first, right? How many people ran Keep on the Shadowfell in 4th edition um, for the exact same reason? Not because it was the best adventure, but because it was the first well, one. Well, and particularly if you keep doing adventures that are like 1 to 15. Right. Because they, they take a long time. Yeah. Good. We've talked a lot. Anything else people want to talk about or, or share uh, on this? Because we still want to le- save time for uh, an interview coming up. Uh, one thing I'd like to point out is that I thought it was awesome in town that they actually made use of the different uh, human communities. Because mm. you had different, right. basically, ethnicities mm-hmm. uh, within the town. And I know at least one of the artwork was a person of color. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. I noticed uh, of color. Now, we've talked about um, the balance in Tyranny of Dragons of male and female. Uh, and I di- it didn't stand out to me one way or the other in this one. But maybe you noticed because you pay attention to these things better than I do, Tracy. I, I didn't get to do the full analysis of the book in Red Larch. It's, uh, I think it was like 20, uh, uh, 12 female characters of about 21 male of the ones that were given uh, things like commoner or uh, cult, like I, I forget what the other ones. Priest, yeah. I think, was another one. Like the ones that were actually given like a role, right? Where they would have a stat block. That mm-hmm. was approximately what the what it came down to. Okay. Which I think, is, I think what, among the among the prophets, it's it's fifty 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 fifty, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. So I was just curious, but but nothing stood out to you. Uh, as particularly egregious or or fantastic uh, in terms of gender equity in the book. Well, I, I thought also there um, the, with the butcher and the I forget what term they used for him, the guy that's like the sheriff of the town. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. uh huh. They named her first and then said that he lived with her. Right. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so so that was kind of I thought a cool thing too. I just and thought that had, was a really neat little thing, anyway. Like the butcher and the sheriff, or constable, or whatever they're calling him, the the captain of the guard, are, right. are, are, are shacking up, you know. <laughs> and, and that's just yeah. sort of a little thing that's that's happening and, in this town. And the people that that help the sheriff are also the the people who are working in the in, in the, the butcher, butcher shop, shop. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why they're overworked and don't notice everything. Right. They're and not, those were the sorts of things I liked too. Yeah, there's all those little nuances, and, and and I really liked the the description of Red Large. Like they get into like there's all kinds of interesting people and things, and it's not like to the point that I'm reading it and thinking, wow, I could tell all kinds of my own stories in there. All these things sort of add to this specific story, which I which I, I like as well. Yeah. Oh, and there's even a woman that's described as being pot, having a pot belly, which is great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I I thought the overall. I'm very pleased with this adventure. I cannot think of of, a, of an adventure that I've purchased or reviewed or run um, that I feel like I felt this positively about um, having just you know reviewed it. So I I'm I'm pleased. I'm I'm excited and I'm really interested to see if I can talk my group into doing it because we've already done one massive really long Temple of Elemental Evil storyline and I'll be curious to see if I can talk them into another one. So sweet. Yeah, I don't normally run adventures, and I'm actually outside of like cons, and I um, I think I might want to run this one, but I'm not ooh. sure. So it's like, yeah. That's high praise from Tracy. <laughs> Any other last thoughts from Matt or Jeff? 
Um, I'm really pleased with 5th edition overall. As I always say, and I give the caveat, I'm a D&D fanboy, so the next latest, greatest thing that comes out I always love. But um, the ease with which this adventure reads, again, I haven't played it, but the way it reads, I'm already I'm already seeing how how uh, how the narrative will flow wonderfully and uh, it's already inspiring me of inspiring me to think of uh, side tracks and things like that so uh overall very 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 pleased very happy with uh how sasquatch games uh, uh it took care of things richard baker knocked it out of the park and uh yeah i can't i can't uh, recommend it more cool Later, we're going to talk to Richard Baker in a few days from Sasquatch Games, um, the studio that, that created the adventure. Uh, but you don't have to wait until later. We're going to listen to it right now. And now we are here with Rich Baker of Sasquatch Games, the what lead designer. Is that the, the title? Uh, I, I kind of wear a lot of hats. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, publisher, uh, president, uh, uh, you know, chief cook and bottle watcher, I, uh, I guess. Is, uh, so... But Publishers, the, I guess, the, the, the main guy behind uh, Princes of the, of the Apocalypse, which is why we're he- talking to you tonight. Uh, it's great to be here. So Sasquatch Games is a studio, as I recall, that was largely started by you and Dave Noonan, both uh, Watsy alum. Uh, uh, yeah, you're leaving out uh, Stephen Schubert, uh, and the third Steve, Sasquatch. And of course, Steve, Stephen Schubert. Yeah. Uh, but you had more than that working on this task. So I, so I, I want to talk a little bit about that, those early processes, that early steps um, in this process, I guess. Uh, in okay. term, like how did Sasquatch get the, the nod from Watsi to do this? Uh, how did you put the team together? All of that. Uh, as far as how the Sasquatch got the nod from Wizards, uh, uh, basically uh, about – uh, let me see. This would have been uh, about a year ago uh, in in uh, December, I guess. Um, uh, Chris Perkins uh, from Wizards of the Coast and Greg Bilsland uh, approached me and, and started letting me know, "Hey, we're we're thinking about uh, uh, working with uh, game studios to produce our our big story arcs." Um, I think that they came to me because uh, I had done a lot of work for them with the uh, Dungeons and Dragons starter set. Mm. Uh, I'm the I'm the author who wrote uh, uh, the uh, Lost Mine of Fandelver uh, mm. starting adventure that's in that in that set. Uh, and since leaving Wizards, I maintained you know pretty good contacts with uh, the folks back at the ranch there. Um, so when they were looking around for somebody who uh, kind of already knew a little bit about Fifth Edition and uh, was was kind of uh, had a shop put together and was ready to do something. Uh, I think that's why they they thought of uh, me and the other Sasquatches. Very cool. And then, but of course, there's more than just the the three Sasquatches uh, who worked on this. You've got um, Rob Schwab. You've got Ed Greenwood. Um, how, how did the rest of the team sort of come together in this? Uh, the uh, the biggest challenge I think we faced in. Uh, in putting together uh, uh, the Elemental Evil campaign was simply uh, we had a pretty aggressive time frame. Um, and when you're working on uh, creating manuscripts, right, there's essentially two ways you can work. You can work in series where, you know, you're doing everything one chapter after the next, or you can work in parallel where you have kind of multiple things happening at the same time. 
And because of the time frame that uh, Wizards wanted to uh, have us work under, we definitely had to work in parallel. We had to get a bunch of people working all at once. We couldn't wait to kind of uh, write the book. Uh, you know, uh, we couldn't take our time writing the book. We had to make sure we were moving pretty quick. Uh, so, uh, realizing that we were going to be working in the Forgotten Realms, um, which, by the way, kind of blew our minds. We were all like, you know, wizards are crazy. How can you possibly do Elemental Evil and not put it in Greyhawk? And they're like, no, no, we have this idea for <laughs> Forgotten Realms. We're like, well, okay. We think you're kind of mixing up the peanut butter and the chocolate there, but yeah, you know, peanut butter and chocolate are kind of awesome together, so maybe it's all right. But anyway, uh, knowing that we're going to be doing uh, a little bit of uh, description and world building in a particular corner of the realms, I very naturally thought of Ed Greenwood. Uh, he's a guy who came in and uh, helped us with our Primeval Thule campaign setting. Uh, did about, uh, oh gosh, close to 10,000 words for us in, in Primeval Thule. So uh, Ed and I go way back with, uh, and the first guy I, I basically reached out to because, you know, hey, if we're, we're going to be talking about places like, uh, like Red Larch and the Deseran Hills and that whole area, Man, let's go to Ed. Ed, 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 will, Ed will understand what I'm trying to get at here. It adds a lot of street cred for the Forgotten Realms fans, I think. Yeah, exactly. But of exactly. course, you've written in the realms too, so you're no slouch there. Uh, I am, but you know, hey, I'm not at Greenwood, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> who is? Yep. Uh, Rob Schwab was a guy that I knew was. Uh, I knew he was uh, getting some free time because he had uh, he was working on wrapping up a lot of the work he had done on uh, the 5th edition uh, core books. Um, and so I looked at Rob, and then once again, another guy I go way back with, a guy who I know is, is extremely prolific, <laughs> you know, writes a bunch of stuff in a hurry, and uh, also very invested and familiar with the new 5th edition system. Uh, Steve Townsend, same thing, uh, a guy that um, I knew also was, was doing a lot of 5th edition work. I think he pitched in and helped out a bunch with the uh, the Monster Manual uh, for 5th edition. Uh, so these are guys who were just kind of like obvious, you know, man, I should go get this guy and I should go get that guy because, you know, I need to get some folks I know and I can trust and get them all going on this at the same time. Uh, later on, I went and uh, brought in uh, Thomas Reed and Jeff Ludwig because I discovered that the writing assignment that I had given myself was becoming... Uh, very difficult for me to keep up with. Uh, one of the jobs that I had, in addition to writing a whole bunch of the book, uh, I was also doing uh, a lot of the art direction, and I was doing a um, a ton of just the the general kind of producer stuff, right? The uh, just you know who's on keeping track of who's doing what and trying to keep the train moving on time. Mm -hmm. And those those responsibilities are definitely. Uh, making me take a look at the ambitiousness of the assignment I'd given myself and say, you know what, I was thinking about writing 90,000 words of this adventure, maybe I should write about 60,000 and and push some of those extra 30,000 words off onto a couple of other folks who can help out. And uh, Thomas and Jeff came in and, and did a real uh, bang-up job for being brought in late in the process. Very good. Speaking of art direction, I think Tracy had a question about art. Yeah, okay. well, Jeff and I had been uh, talking about this before, and we, we kind of felt like the art in this book uh, felt a little more like Wizards of the Coast-style art than some of the other stuff we'd seen, and we were just wondering about, you know, that process, too. Like, um, you said you took on a lot of the art direction. Were you getting notes from elsewhere or stuff like that? Um, there, there's two reasons for that, uh, as far as why it kind of looks 
similar. Uh, first of all, I will say that uh, Kate Irwin, who is the uh, D&D art director in-house there at Wizards, uh, gave me a ton of help. Um, she was she was really great to work with, and, and she, uh, when I was having a hard time, when I kind of tapped out the Sasquatch resources as far as who are all the artists that we know and we've worked with before, and realizing, man, I still got to commission like another twenty illustrations. I got to find, I got to find more people. Uh, Kate was very generous in, in kind of sharing uh, some of her contact list and pointing me in the right direction, and yeah, to get a hold of people. Um, but uh, the other reason that I think it looks a lot like. Uh, a lot like the, the other D&D stuff, is we, uh, once again, having worked at Wizards for a very long time, I knew a lot of the same people, um, and I was able to uh, make use of, in some cases, a number of artists who have done a lot of work for D&D in the past. For example, guys like uh, Claudio Posas uh, uh, is a fellow that did work for me in Primeval Fool, um, also has done a ton of work for Kate Irwin with D&D stuff over the years. Um, uh, guys like uh, Jason Engel, a uh, similar situation. Uh, a fellow like Jim Nelson is a guy I haven't worked with before in like, the Sasquatch stuff, but uh, turned out to be uh, you know, great to work with and, and very uh, uh, has been used, obviously, a lot in the recent D&D stuff. And I was also very happy that I was able to take a couple of guys that did a great job for me in Primeval Fool and give them a, a crack at working on D&D stuff. So, for example, uh, uh, Claus Pallone, who does all those like beautiful landscapes that you see in the beginning of in the chapter openings, hmm. <clears throat> uh, he's a guy who did great stuff for us in Primeval Fool, and uh, I was able to bring him in and, and give him a shot at some D and D stuff, and I think he he did fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin Mayhew from also did a bunch of stuff in Primeval Fool and helped us out here too. Does that answer your question, Tracy, or yeah, did I skip around anything? No, I think that's everything. Did you want to follow up with the 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 inclusiveness? Yeah, I wasn't sure if we should ask an or So one of the things I kind of noticed while reading it um, was just that there seemed to be uh, people of color in like the art a lot more than I've seen in the past. Uh, I don't, I haven't done a statistical analysis yet, so I don't know for sure. But it just felt that way, and also the use of the um, different ethnicities within the human subgroup in the realms uh, also seemed to come about, come out a lot more in this book. And I was wondering if that was uh, something you purposefully did, or or how that came about. Um, that was actually very deliberate, um, <clears throat> and, and that was something that uh, I actually. I actually uh, struggled with it a little bit uh, in that uh, uh, every time I submitted uh, the the art order to Wizards of the Coast for approval to say, "Hey, these are the art. Uh, this is the art I'm going to commission," uh, they came back and just kept on, on uh, asking me again and again and again. You know, hey, the, uh, you know, take this white male and make him something else. You know, and what if it's <laughs> to the point where I was like, I, I finally called them up. I was like, "What? Okay, guys, I, I understand. You know, diversity is great, but..." I kind of feel like you you don't want to see any white male humans at all, and and they explained well. There's actually a good reason for that, and that is uh, with the appearance of other non-human races, um, we feel that the place where you're going to get uh, a show of inclusiveness is specifically anytime you have a human character appearing in in uh, in, in an illustration, right? That. In previous editions of D and I think there was a, sometimes a little bit of a of a of an effort to attempt to sneak in, like, okay, 
this is what an elf with African features might look like, or this is what a halfling with Asian features might look like. Um, in 5th edition, uh, Wizards has kind of shied, shied away a little bit from trying to do some of that for the non-humans um, because it's hard to do it well and, and signal to the reader what they're seeing. Uh, on the other hand, as long as it's the human characters in the pictures that you are seeing uh, show off a typical human range of, of features and skin tones, uh, then you have, uh, that's kind of the, the easiest way to show off uh, inclusivity without uh, doing things that maybe the, the, the casual reader will look at and say, I don't understand, is this, is this actually supposed to be a very, very small Asian woman? Or is this actually a halfling with Asian features? Because how could you tell the difference on a, on a static piece of art? Hmm. Right. So you got into a little bit there talking about the art direction and the role that Wizards of the Coast played um, in, in helping guide your decisions as the art director. Um, I want to talk a little bit more, bit more about Wizards' role in, in working on the book in general. Like when, they, when you started it, what plan did they give you? Uh, how involved were they in the process as you continued to work on it? I just sort of want to hear um, how that plays out. Uh short answer is they um, they had a pretty good outline of of the adventure more or less in mind already um, uh, for example uh, uh, there's a framing device for kind of this very sandboxy adventure which is the idea of hey there's a delegation of important people from Mirabar who have wandered through the desert uh, valley and have gone missing um, so that was part of that, that framing device is something that, that Wizard suggested to us kind of right up front. And I didn't see any reason, you know, why we could change that. The only thing that really we did with that little framing story was uh, to kind of nail down specifics as far as, uh, you know, exactly where they went missing and why, you know, which, 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 ones, which cults got them and, and, you know, how they got uh, kind of squirreled off into the temple. Um, let me see what's another example they uh they provided uh the idea of uh for example devastation orbs um which is kind of an important uh uh evil uh you know an evil elemental nuke that the 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 cults are trying to build these things and take them to different spots and set them off um and, and you know so wizards uh basically said hey we think this is how they're they're causing these different uh, catastrophes around the area, and we said, okay, great, so we need to actually come up with some stats for something called a devastation orb. We need to show them an art. We have to show how the cults will be using them in the course of the adventure. Um, mm -hmm. There's also places where, for example, wizards had some 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 ideas that they had kicked around and we wound up actually not featuring. For example, uh, in the concept art at the back of The Princes of the Apocalypse, there's uh, sketches of places called like elemental outposts. Mm -hmm. um, and and that was great, but we also knew that they wanted us to kind of marry this into the uh, the history of the realms a little bit. And the history of the realms had featured these uh, these things called the haunted keeps in this part of the world. So we looked at it and said, okay, we have the idea of the elemental outposts, and those are really cool pieces of art. But we also have the idea of these ghost keeps that are kind of in this little area. It, we'd, we'd rather try to tie the story to the ghost keeps and really kind of marry it to the the Deserin Valley. And you know what that means? We have to take this this otherwise cool idea 
and kind of set it aside uh, for right now. And also, we knew that um, this is not the only we're not the only people working on elemental evil stuff. Wizards has other partners too who are doing some elemental evil things. And if we don't pick up a particular thread, there's a chance that one of Wizards' other partners, you know, can take something and run with it. Hmm. And so, did you send in, you know, regular manuscripts, sort of here's where we're at, and then get feedback from Watsi about, and how much did you have to change as a result of their feedback, and or how much, you know, or was it pretty pretty spot on, or how'd that all go? Um, yes, the uh, the feedback process was uh, was thorough and difficult. That's uh, um, it was uh, Wizards provided us uh, with. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of feedback, um, literally hundreds of, of comments, and and tracking all that stuff down was indeed uh, it was indeed a challenging part of the process. Um, it's one of those things. It's like uh, at uh, at the end of the process, hey, you know, I'm I'm very happy with the book uh, that we got to. I think it looks fantastic. It's great. Um, Wizards did a a real bang up job in uh, in and help you know in. in and helping us identify what needed to get uh, tweaked and adjusted, and, and, and get these book, uh, get this book to be the uh, you know the best book we could make it. Um, but it was also uh, it was also uh, a lot of long, grueling weeks uh, uh, last spring and summer as we were working like crazy on this. Was it worth it? Uh, I suppose that's a kind of up to the reader. Right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I think so. I, I'm actually. I said, but I'm would you? But really would you do? But would you do it again? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think so. You know, I, I, I might, uh, I might, you know, make a little bit more investment up front about, hey guys, uh, let's talk about how many comments it's <laughs> we could we can field at one time, right? You know, or sure. something like that, right? It might be better to, uh, yeah, going with my eyes uh, a little more open, but uh, uh, I, I do say that uh, with a with a my tongue in cheek because I, I think the book actually came out looking fantastic. Um, it's, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a great looking adventure. Um, it's very sandboxy. It's extremely open ended. Those are things that, that I really like in, uh, in adventures. And I, I love the fact that you can kind of approach this from a, a zillion different angles and, and, and attack the story in so many different ways. There's, there's so much player agency in this. And, uh, and a lot of that was, uh, right from the foundation in, in Wizards, uh, story documents that they, that they armed us with that uh, they wanted something that, that uh, was going to be the, the biggest, best sandbox ever. And it was, it was great to be able to, to you know, help them execute on that. Yeah. On, on one hand, you've created this sort of sandboxy ad, uh, adventure. And, of course, w- sandboxy, I think, is, is a good way to describe it. It's about as sandboxy as you can get uh, and be a published adventure, right? Um, there are certainly certain things that have to happen in certain orders, but but it's pretty flexible and dynamic. Uh, and on the other hand, it also kind of pays homage to the previous uh, Elemental Evil storylines in that it heavily features you know, what is effectively a, a massive dungeon crawl. Exactly. Uh, and at the end, you somehow got to mix in keeping it fun, right? Because dungeon crawls can turn into a bit of a slog, and and sandboxes can turn a little bit undirected and lost. Uh, so how do you how do you balance those three things: dungeon crawl, sandbox, and still keep it fun? Um, the the mechanism that that I kind of went with, and this is a, once again this is the place where, hey, we had the great story documents from Wizards, and this is kind of where Sasquatch came in and, and put our own stamp on it. 
um, I took the, the those story documents and I developed the uh, the outline for the adventure. And I realized that one of the things I needed to do was have uh, a number of uh, sort of triggered event uh, type encounters that were uh, padding around the dungeon crawl so that the dungeon would be changing and evolving as players interacted with it. That the story would keep moving so that there are trigger events like, for example, uh, uh, hey, uh, DM, you know, uh, after the party leaves the dungeon for the, you know, for the second time, um, the the cult might realize that they're being attacked and retaliate. And this is the form. This is an encounter you can run to show that retaliation. Uh, so, in addition to these uh, event triggered encounters, which kind of pad out uh, each of the different sections of the of the adventure, uh, we also were encouraged to create a bunch of side tracks. Uh, that really had nothing whatsoever to do with the elemental evil storyline, just to provide the DM with, first of all, a set of red herrings that he could drop out there to say, here's something else important going on. Uh, you might want to pursue this, but it's not really important if you do, uh, which kind of helps a little bit of the verisimilitude of the world, right? That not everything's going to stop just because elemental evil is, is on the march. Uh, there's going to be other things that need to, you know, other problems that crop up and need to be addressed. Um, several of those uh, those little sidetracks, as we call them, are uh, a- uh, elements that came uh, right out of the story document that Chris Perkins prepared right at the get-go. Uh, and a couple of others are ones that we sort of thought up on our own as we were uh, putting together our own, our, our own outline. But uh, between the event-triggered uh, encounters and, and developments and the, and the little sidetracks, I think, once again, there's a great way to kind of break up the potential tedium of nothing but dungeon, dungeon, dungeon for all oh, the next fourteen levels. Very cool. Yeah, uh, Tracy. Any last questions before I ask my uh, my last f- finishing up things? Well, um, so I, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit more about the verisimilitude and um, those events because one of the things my players they never really wanted to do another uh, published adventure. Uh, <laughs> After the one we uh, we did with Fourier, because of the fact that things weren't changing, uh, and one of the things I did notice during it is that it seemed like there was a real effort to um, try to even within the different cults as much as possible, uh, given word count and everything, to create their own sort of uh, culture or environment or things that they were doing in each of those. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. Um. Yeah, I, 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 that, that's one of the things where uh, uh, the Wizards team should get a lot of, of props for the prep work they did in, in, in kind of building us the toolbox that we could use to put this adventure together because they thought about that really right in the initial story document and laid out a lot of the ideas for, for how the cults uh, uh, would function, right? Their, their approach to overcoming problems, uh, the sorts of uh, special monsters or pets, uh, or, or uh, magical tools they might use. Uh, so they created a lot of those concepts right up front. And, and really, uh, all we had to do at Sasquatch was, was take, a fun, uh, take some of those things and, and uh, codify them, uh, you know, kind of nail them down in stats and, and put them in a setting. Um, so, and a lot, uh, of it, ahead, a, a lot of it feels like a fairly natural um, evolution from Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, uh, which was what Monty Cook, I think, worked on. 
Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and and where he had the four different cults and and the way that they sort of functioned differently and 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 all of that was was at least the beginnings of what we see here was there. Like I don't know that it's the same, but you can certainly see how one evolved into the other. Very well, much so. And one of the things I saw too, like, and we talked about this a little when we did our um, the other part of the podcast is there were like p- recurring patterns in parts of the adventure, but they were they were made different for each of the cults. Things like, uh, you know, which random uh, creature also decided that it would live in that part of the, the dungeon and be kind of okay with the cultists and really hate anybody who wasn't a cultist sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, once again, a lot of that came from uh, the prep work that Wizards of the Coast did. Uh, literally to the point of, of kind of giving us, hey, here are monsters that we think would be good, you know, associated with uh, these particular cults. Like, mm-hmm. you know, for example... Uh, some of them were kind of generic, right? Like, hey, we, we think that things like ogres or minotaurs might work in any of the cults. But uh, Umber Hulks uh, probably ought to roll with the Earth Cult. Sure. And, okay, sure, that makes sense. We buy that. And you know what? Hey, the Umber Hulk uh, uh, rolling with the Earth Cult is just a lot of fun. And I actually uh, created a, a really fun, fiendish little trap in the, in the, uh, <laughs> the uh, surface Earth Temple uh, mm-hmm. based around an Umber Hulk. I'm kind of proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> I also liked, uh, although that one feels a little bit like, was it the Rancor Pit, right? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I also liked the, on the same note, I liked the, the Lich, who's like, well, I really have nothing to do with these guys, but I'm not using that part of the, 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 the complex anyway, you know? Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, that one was actually a, a little bit strange to me, because uh, that was one that uh, Matt Cernet, who is the, uh, essentially the, the Forgotten Realms uh, canon guy at, mm-hmm. at Wizards, uh, he felt it was really important to uh, get that character in, um, hmm. and I, I, I kind of thought to myself, uh, "Okay, you know, we we'll do that if you think it's important." Yeah, I'm I'm happy to make room in a dungeon for this guy, but I was kind of scratching my head about about it. But having you know, after you know, Matt made the request, I went and kind of dug up the story of of the character and really kind of did some of the the research. And came to, oh, okay. I see why Matt is asking for this now, and this is actually kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I have to admit I was a little stumped right at first. <laughs> well, you 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 handled it uh, very well. Well, thank you. So. And and to me, there also seemed to be like a lot of uh, parts of the adventure that helped deal with sometimes what can kind of be problematic player uh, decisions, mm-hmm. where like uh, people keep holding back all the time, and so like there are different parts of the adventure where uh, if you hold back, there are actually creatures that look out for that and attack you. And I thought um, that was cool. Yep, yep. It's the little, the uh, little strategy uh, bits. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Um, by holdback, do, do you mean actually characters are like hang at the back of the party and try not to get in the melee? Or are you talking about people who like attack once and then leave and then you so know, they, gear up? They'll, they'll be like, well, I'll let everyone else go ahead and I'll stay like thirty feet back. The classic wizard. <laughs> the classic wizard who won't go anywhere near the fight. Yeah, and like there's not even a fight yet, but they definitely don't want to be at the front, mm-hmm. thinking <laughs> that nothing will come behind because they've already been through there. But there are like uh, lurker creatures that live up on the ceiling or whatnot that you may have not seen yet. Huh. Um, that's kind of funny. I I don't remember doing that consciously. I I guess maybe unconsciously I had an axe to grind against those guys. <laughs> Well, not so, not on the, not enough to really like ruin their day, right? But enough to to keep them on their toes, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. I I don't remember doing that on purpose. Uh, so uh, if I if it worked out that way, then then great. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
That's all I have. Very good. So I have have just a couple of follow-ups or a couple of of wrapping up sort of questions. Um, I want to know about your favorite parts of the adventure, both overall and that you specifically wrote. Um, Favorite parts of the adventure overall. uh, Let me see. Uh, I actually like uh, Steve Townsend's um, uh, uh, the... Uh, the aerial knights, the feathergrail knights, um, uh, right up front, because uh, your first brush with the cult, um, and this is a potential spoiler alert, so you know, be warned. But uh, your fir- first brush with one of the cults, uh, the most likely first in contact with the cults, is one that is not obviously a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it's great because it it kind of emphasizes this is how the air cult is a little bit different from the other cults, right? That they they're they're very much into deception and illusion and not being what you think they are. Um, and second, it, it's also fun because there's there's loads of potential for uh, uh, for misdirection uh, and, and sending the players off to uh, to basically be pawns of the earth cult. Uh, pardon me, of, of the air cult mm-hmm. for a little bit, which which I think is a lot of fun because as it turns out, if you let these guys steer you um, steer you along. Uh, you go from uh, facing what is, uh, in terms of just like the the encounter difficulty, the easiest of the cults to beat, and they send you to the second hardest, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Right. If you beat on the uh, the air cultists, they're they're actually kind of like the that 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 particular setting is like uh, essentially keyed for like level three, level four encounters, and they send you off to go you know to like the place where you should have been like level six or seven to go to, <laughs> and I think that's I think that's fantastic. Um, so yes, I, I like Steve Townsend's. Uh, um, Feathergale Spire a lot. Um, it's just just a, a lots of great role playing. Uh, in terms of the part of the adventure that I think uh, I worked on, I like the best. Uh, I think I'm pretty happy with the Temple of the Crushing Wave, uh, which is the Water Cult section of the of the big main dungeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I think that the um, I think it's a it's a memorable setting, right? The idea of okay, you're in this, uh, you're in this ancient ruined dwarven city that's been reoccupied by the cult, and this area is the commercial district that actually has a canal that winds through it. Um, so it's, I, I just I just like the canal. I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a nice touch. It's a fun map. Very cool. All right. Well, we've uh, taken up thirty minutes or more of your time at this point, so uh, we're gonna leave it there. And thank you for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for asking me to come on. If people want to know more about what you're up to or where they can find out more about Sasquatch's work, where should they go? Well, our website is uh, sasquatchgamestudio.com. Uh, you can also uh, follow us on Facebook. Um, and uh, I guess, uh, boy, the big stuff for us uh, these days, still still pretty stoked about Primeval Fool, which came out just last uh yeah, last month, early April, I guess. Very so, good. People, yeah. people should go check that out. Primeval Thule, if they're not aware, is the setting that you guys have created? Exactly. It's sort of a Conan versus Cthulhu, mm-hmm. and it's currently available for uh, uh, Pathfinder, 13th Age, and 4th uh, Edition D&D. And I assume once we have a, a license for 5th, you'll work on putting something together for that, too. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 we love 5e. We'd like to do more with it. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Hey, once again, thanks for having me. Uh, And that's the end of the episode.
Uh, we would like to say thank you to our guests. First, Jeff Wynn. Jeff, where can uh, people find you? Well, you can listen to the Appendix N podcast, which is a podcast where we talk about the old books that inspired the new adventures that you are playing at at, at, at your table. Uh, and if any of our listeners or any of our co-hosts would like to be a part of the show, they can email uh, the uh, Tome Show to find out more. Yes, you can. And Matt James, what about you? Um, you can pr- probably find me slaving away at my desk with a bottle of whiskey and... I have, a, I have a much better question for Matt James. Matt James. Oh, I'm sorry. Prince when is Red Ages coming out? <laughs> Princes of the Apocalypse. How oh. could I fit this into my Red Ages campaign? Very, very seamlessly and <laughs> easily because Red Ages deals with the time paradox. So, yeah. You can incorporate <laughs> all of the Temple of Elemental Evil Adventures into one Red Ages campaign, right? Oh, absolutely. You can go from the from distant past and you can even do some far future stuff because fifth edition actually left a lot of room for the, uh, you know, modern day or future adventures. They've got awesome tables for, you know, translating broadswords to, to other forms of weaponry. Mm-hmm. There's even an entry in the DMG, isn't there with, for, with yep. guns and lasers and things. Yeah. And they, yeah. And say, Hey, you know, if, if you want to run this game as a futuristic game, here's how you can run with laser rifles. But uh, no, I'm, um, yeah, we're pretty much – I've got, like, one little tiny thing left to do with Red Aegis, and then that will be done. And um, you and, can find- and if somebody out there listening doesn't <laughs> know what Red Aegis is, why did, that we've been talking about for a while now, why don't you tell them a little bit about it? Red Aegis is a millennia-spanning cooperative role-playing game whereby um, – the, the party or the group or what we call a tribe um, kind of narrates the history of their game as they're playing it. It's it's really it's kind of uh, difficult to give an elevator speech for, but by the end of a, a Red Ages campaign, which is typically 10 sessions, you'll have effectively created an entire campaign setting from the distant past to the far future chock full of all the notes uh, and hints of history while playing the game itself. It's really, it's, uh, it's, it's been a fascinating adventure just uh, designing the game. So, uh, yeah, you know, that Minzo Branzan um, supplement that came out like right, right towards the end of fourth edition. Yeah. And it kind of, and it kind of went through all the ages of the city. I yeah. always sort of thought that that combined that with Red Aegis, and you'd have a really interesting campaign. Well, it's it's interesting you say that. Um, you might be interested to open the front cover and look mm. at the credits of Menzo Barons <laughs> uh, and that that may have come, that may have uh, occurred to me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it's definitely a divorce from every other kind of role playing game I've ever played, and I've played a good bit of them. So. Um, yeah, I think, I think it'll be fun. And you can find me on Twitter at Matt underscore James underscore RPG or at penandpapergames.com or enworld.org or any of, any of the big sites. I, I, I still lurk around there, um, as time permits. And we'd also like to say thank you to all of you for supporting the show by shopping with our affiliate links when you use Amazon or D&D Classics. 
And if you want to get a hold of us, maybe to uh, volunteer to be on uh, the Appendix N podcast, or you want to tell us why uh, Princes of the Apocalypse is horrible and we're all just a bunch of shills, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that's episode 250, where we defeated the elements themselves in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.